was his pitch to the Israeli voters. Vote for me because I returned Gaza to the Stone Ages. This is barbarism. But these guys are still welcomed in Brussels and uh, Paris and London and Washington and wherever else they might go. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. We're back with Ali Abunima to continue our discussion on the top stories of 2022. In part one, we discussed Israel's unmitigated violence and Western support and complicity in that violence. Now for part two, we'll take a deeper look at Palestinian resistance and international civil society response and activism, as well as the ongoing work of uh, Palestinian human rights groups um, to document and um, and hold Israel accountable for its crimes. Um, let's talk about the, the designation of the six uh, Palestinian human rights groups. Last year, the Israeli government designated six Palestinian human rights groups as quote unquote terrorist organizations. And these are, you know, really longstanding, uh, respectable Palestinian human rights groups, which have been going in some cases since the 1970s, the late 70s, um, I believe, Al-Haq. Um, and, uh, you know, ever since that uh, bogus designation, um, staff and uh, lawyers for the six groups have been barred from traveling. They've had their offices raided and ransacked by Israeli soldiers. That happens in August. And just in the past week, Israel says that it's going to expel Salah Hamouri, a Palestinian French lawyer for one of the groups, Adamir, the prisoner rights organization. Um, and uh, he's he himself has been in detention since July without charge or trial the whole time, I believe. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the complicity by Western states and institutions, and particularly in Europe and North America, they're aiding and abetting Israel's attacks on these six human rights groups, even while occasionally sort of uh, voicing toothless platitudes about them. Yeah, the the six groups, they include, of course, Al-Haq, uh, Al-Damir, uh, Bissan, Defense for Children International Palestine. And as you mentioned, uh, Asa, they uh, they were designated as so-called terrorist organizations in October of 2021. And then in August, uh, the Israeli army raided their offices, ransacked them, in some cases sealed them and, and declared them closed. All the groups have continued their work. And throughout this, and and Remember, several of these groups are funded either by the European Union or by individual EU governments or both. And these governments have been so slow to respond uh, for the first uh, six months to a year, almost till August, till the attacks, the EU refused to say anything critical of Israel on this, just the vaguest statements. And I went after them all the time. I was r repeatedly asking the spokesperson and I would be told, yes, we're still looking into the, you know, we're asking for more information, even though it was very clear to everyone that Israel had no evidence because this was all completely bogus and propagandistic and designed to shut down legitimate groups that that 
whose real crime in Israel's eyes is the helping gather evidence for the International Criminal Court. You know, uh, Al-Haq has been, uh, and others have been in the forefront of that, collecting evidence that has been forwarded to the ICC in The Hague. That's their real crime. That's what Israel wants to stop. So, uh, and Israeli so, intelligence organizations have been working against them covertly for years, attacking yeah, them in and, all sorts so of ways. It came, out, it came out this year, for example, Salah Hamouri, the French-Palestinian lawyer who works for Al-Damir uh, and who has been in so-called administrative detention without charge or trial since July. And that's his only, only latest imprisonment. Israel has been, he's 37 now, uh, Israel has been persecuting him since he was 15. He was born in Jerusalem. He is French citizenship, and he's in prison without charge or trial, a political prisoner. And it emerged uh, during the course of this year that he and others who work for these uh, human rights groups were subjected to surveillance using the notorious Pegasus spyware. So there's nothing Israel isn't doing to people whose only crime is that they are documenting its crimes against Palestinians. And again, this is an example where if Salah Hamouri were in uh, were a French citizen detained by Russia, for example, a, a human rights lawyer detained by Russia, we'd be hearing about him 24 seven in the, in the mainstream media. The French government has barely made a noise about Salah Hamouri, despite the fact that lawmakers in France, many of them, particularly from the left wing uh, La France Insoumise bloc, have been loudly demanding that the French government act on behalf of its citizens. To be fair, the French government has spoken up more forcefully recently, but again, it's always so little, so late, and never accompanied by the kinds of threats and sanctions and uh, real punitive measures that the so-called West is always using against, uh, you know, anyone else on the planet who dares to displease them. Right. Uh, it just shows the real hypocrisy behind all this. Yeah. And part of uh, the ICC investigation documents that the that these human rights groups uh, have been sending are around the, I believe it was the 2014 assault on Gaza, in which Benny Gantz, uh, the Israeli minister, was heavily involved uh, in in suspected war crimes. Um, and Benny Gantz himself was the one who designated these groups as so-called terrorist organizations. That, that's right. Yeah. Just imagine if any, you know, uh, so-called regime because it's always a regime when the west is opposed to it we're doing that suppose that uh, the lukashenko government in belarus did that the the army commander in belarus declares human rights groups investigating the belarus army as terrorists would anyone in the west stay quiet about that or take it seriously or putin uh, was doing something like that that's exactly what's happening. Gantz is almost certainly a target of the International Criminal Court investigation. And remember, in 2014, he was the Israeli army commander uh, in charge of the attack, which killed more than 2,200 Palestinians, including more than 550 children. And then 
a few years later, I think it was in 2019 when Gantz was running for uh, election, he bragged about that and he's, he, he actually ran uh, election ads uh, on the internet, and I don't know if they were on TV as well in Israel, about how uh, I returned Gaza to the Stone Ages. That was his pitch. That was his pitch to the Israeli voters. Vote for me because I returned Gaza to the Stone Ages. This is barbarism. But these guys are still welcomed in Brussels and uh, uh, Paris and London and Washington and wherever else they might go and taken seriously. We're still yeah, and, told and, about and, the shared values that we have with these people. Exactly. And that pitch to the voters was successful enough that he was able to enter government, albeit briefly. Um, I mean, uh, uh, that's oh, kind he, of... No, he's, he's not... I think he's been in government continuously since since uh, since then, since that election, because he was briefly sort of co-prime minister with Netanyahu. Right. But even when that fellow, he's remained defense minister. He's still defense minister now. He So he oversaw the massacre in uh, Gaza in 2014 as chief of staff of the army. The massacre in May 2021 as defense minister and the massacre of August 2022 as defense minister, not to mention all the other ongoing killing uh, in the West Bank and in Gaza uh, all throughout. So yeah. his pitch of, you know, I returned Gaza to the Stone Ages was, was solid and popular enough to keep him in one of the top three positions of the Israeli government continuously for years. Yeah, I mean, it's things like that that really make me sort of give a bitter laugh when people in the West, and we see this even among people, some people on the left, or I don't know, you, I would think of them more as liberals, but people, people who say like, um, oh, you know, we just need to appeal to the Israelis to change things because, you know, there's so many people in Israel who don't support what Netanyahu's doing and there's so many people who want peace and all this kind of stuff. But, Whereas, but do they still say so honestly? I mean, no. They, I mean, I, they I do in Britain. Years, he, like the the like the the sort of momentum left. The 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 John Landsman type. I mean, John Landsman has told me that. He told me that over Twitter before. Like, um, it, it's just this kind of nonsense, um, liberal Zionist stuff, which was really, um, really quite successful in Britain. Really, in uh, in the whole operation to take down Jeremy Corbyn, which maybe we can talk about in a bit. But um, yeah, there is that. I mean, I don't you've think it has very much success. <laughs> you've got you've got some news about that, Asa. Yeah. So as we're filming this, we um, my new book was just announced by my publisher or books. Um, so, yeah. So that's great news. Weaponizing yeah. anti-Semitism, how the Israel lobby brought down Jeremy Corbyn will be out in it's going to be published and in all good bookshops in April 2023 um but um if you pre-order it now I'm doing my full-on <laughs> plug um I mean you know no, I, 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 absolutely yeah yeah um I you know you have to um if you pre-order it now you will get not only 15% off but if you um order it from the publisher or books you will um, get it before anyone else. They have this uh, model where it comes out. They, they ship them direct before it gets out in bookshops. So 
yeah if you go to um allbooks.com it's on the front page or you can go to my Substack as well asawinstanley.substack.com there's a link to pre-order it there and it's like um well i guess let's talk about it now so it's yeah you know as 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 my readers will know and regular listeners and viewers of the ei podcast will know that uh, it's a story i've been covering for eight almost eight weary long years now um <laughs> at the electronic intifada primarily and um yeah it's um it's a story that it's the kind of story where i think it, actually in retrospect it suits a book really well because it's kind of a depressing story you know like you don't it's the kind of thing where you don't want to read about it the latest com, you know calamity to befall Jeremy Corbyn oh, and yet another person is being falsely accused of anti-Semitism you know because you know they, they've said something supporting Palestinians or whatever it was um, and there's just this long slow drip feed of depressing stories and um, you know now you can read a whole book full of them it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite a bit but, but, but uh, it, yeah I mean you're you're uh... You know, you, you might be weary of it because you've just written a book. And I've had that experience when you get to the end <laughs> of writing a book, you're like, I'm done with this for a yeah. while. <laughs> but the but it is a, it, it is an incredible story and an important story because what what has happened, I mean, the case you're making, as I understand it, is that it's the Israel lobby that really played a key role in bringing Jeremy Corbyn down and of course mm. it's not the Israel lobby alone right but they played an, an incredibly important part and let's remember what was at stake here because Jeremy Corbyn a li lifelong left-wing supporter of Palestinian rights swept to the leadership of the Labour Party, Britain's main opposition Labour Party, on a wave of grassroots support, a real insurgency, taking everyone by surprise, winning a landslide, and he came within a few thousand votes of becoming, correct? Yeah, in, in so he won in a landslide the election of the Labour Party, the internal election for leadership twice, uh, within one year, um, you know, hundreds of thousands, around 200,000 people joined the Labour Party uh, primarily really to vote for him. And then in 2017's general election, he came incredibly close to having a chance. Well, he, he came incredibly close to being prime minister. You know, it would have been, it, 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 you know, there was one analysis that kept famously, and people do to still talk about it now, saying that he came within about 2,200 votes of uh, being prime minister, it would have been difficult. It would he would have to form form some sort of coalition, and I think his government would have been un, unstable. But the point is, he 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 came that close, even with the entire British establishment against him, the whole of the media, you know, from the liberal left to the right wing newspapers, um, the Guardian especially, the the liberal newspaper were against him. Um, the whole of the um, British political establishment, his own party, his own MPs, three quarters of his own MPs um, wanted him to go. Um, and they were all briefing against him in the media. There was, and there was this 24-7 campaign. And yet he still, even despite all that, he still came so close. So you can imagine, you know, if he had had a united party behind him, 
um, he could have absolutely and, got into and, government. And, and think about what the significance of that would have been for, for the UK to be able to elect uh, a left-wing government that supported Palestinian rights with a prime minister who supported uh, an arms embargo on Israel, who had spoken up very clearly against Israeli crimes, uh, and what an example that would have set for the rest of the so-called West. In other words, yeah. it was a glitch in the system that had to be stopped. Yeah. Now, the, the thing I want to sort of put to you, Asa, is that that this the narrative that was used to thoroughly discredit Jeremy Corbyn, not just within the UK, but internationally, because it became sort of a standard talking point, even within the US, is that Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters hate Jews and are racists and are anti-Semites. Yeah. And this, I think, what any what a reader of your book will find is that this was a completely fake and fabricated narrative. There's yeah. no truth, no truth to it. And the reason I'm emphasizing that is because even in segments of the left, that came, you know, people tried to put forward this sort of like this compromise narrative that said, oh, well, yes, anti-Semitism is a problem in the Labour Party, but Jeremy Corbyn isn't an anti-Semite. Or if only Jeremy Corbyn would come and, you know, just say these right words, then, you know, the Israel <laughs> lobby would be satisfied. Yeah. And so I think it's important to stress that this was a completely fake narrative, not a, an ounce of truth to it, but it it became accepted as truth by so many people. So the your book just is is incredible in terms of showing that irrefutably and i understand you're already getting some really really good reviews of it from some of the uh, top zionists on social media <laughs> <laughs> who have read every single word of it yeah <laughs> yeah i do it, it always tickles me when people condemn books they haven't read mm -hmm. um i think that's great but i've also i mean i've, I've had some uh, advanced hype for it as well like um one of the people who've given me a um a sort of blurb if you will um, is uh, Alexi Sale, um, who uh, I know you'll know, Ali, having grown up in the UK. Brilliant, the brilliant comedian. Yeah. And he's said, you know, it, it was very kind of him. You know, he, he I sent him the manuscript and he came back and he gave me a, a really great little uh, plug. And he said the way he's described the situation is that the left wing anti-Semitism lie was the weapons of mass destruction of our era. So in other words, it was this it, it was this massive media disinformation uh, project which was accepted 100%. Like all of the media in you know 2002 in Britain were just following what Tony Blair said and were saying, oh well, you know, within 45 minutes there's going to be a mushroom cloud uh, in Britain or whatever it was they were saying, you know, all this nonsense which was then, later debunked and you know famously the new york times then said well you know we made a mistake but we couldn't have possibly known we all knew and we all knew that um this stuff about jeremy corbyn being an anti-semite his movement being anti-semitic movement was a load of rubbish like you said it was a complete fabrication 
And yeah, I mean, I do, I do get into it in the book um, in some detail. I mean, it's, it was difficult. I mean, we've reported it at Electronic Intifada for so many years now, and there was so much reporting we've done that um, I had to be selective of the stories that I included in it because there was, there was so many. So I, I think I've, I've tried to do my best in kind of, um, you know, fusing it all together and in a coherent narrative, which I think tells the story for the first time. You know, there's no other book like this. Um, I mean, there's, there, I mean, there's, but there is already lots of other books. There's a whole sort of cottage industry industry in publishing. I mean, that's turned to play a bit really, but there is a whole sort of subgenre of anti-Corbyn books and there's several books um, about um, the so-called left-wing anti-Semitism problem, focusing on Jeremy Corbyn as well. Um, and, you know, they're just rubbish. There's just a lot of absolute nonsense in them. So this is really the first book giving um, what Peter Oborn has called the case for the defence. And, um, I've, I mean, I've already had a big response to it on social media, people being really supportive and saying they're pre-ordering the book and that it's something that um, people were really waiting to see. Um, so, you know, um, we'll we'll see what happens. I mean, I I find it interesting as well that um, Zionist prominent pro-Israel people on Twitter have been attacking it already because honestly, I mean, I overestimated them. I mean, I thought they'd be smart enough to ignore it, but um, <laughs> it looks like that's not going to happen. So that's good for me. That's great. Amazing. That's great for you. But I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about your book because obviously we think it's great. You know, this is this is really a milestone and we want people to know about the book. But if I can just say, I, you know, we're, we're very proud that a lot of what's in the book uh, was uh, things that were first reported by you at the Electronic Intifada. There's a lot of new material, so mm -hmm. people won't just be getting the same as they've got on EI. And of course, you've woven it together into a compelling story and narrative. So people who you know, can get the beginning, middle, and the end of the story by reading the book. But I just want to say that... Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, just to pat us on the back as the electronic intifada, that we, were, yeah. we were able to report this story uh, when so many other publications uh, in the UK and even outside the UK didn't do so or wouldn't do so or were even complicit in the smear campaign against Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and I'm, I'm talking about, I'm not going to name names, but other so-called independent <laughs> left-wing media sites. I name names in the book. <laughs> okay, well, that's that's a great reason for people to to, to get it as well, because you'll you'll get to see the names. But and I, and I think part of it was, I mean, you're in the UK, and and you know, most of the the, the credit is yours for knowing this story, for pursuing it for having the trust of so many people who are victimized by these smear campaigns to report on the situations they were in. But I think part of it also, I don't know, I want to put this to you and see what you think, uh, is that we were not in the UK and we were not subject to the kind of, I mean, the, uh, as a publication, mm -hmm. you know, not subject to the kind of social pressure 
that I think many publications came in and not just social pressure, but legal threats, because yeah. actually you and EI on more than one occasion uh, came under various legal threats from the Labour Party uh, to try and stop you or intimidate you or dissuade you from reporting this incredibly important story. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are two things to say about that. And the, the first is, um, number one, the, the book is absolutely would not have happened without the electronic intifada and without you specifically, Ali, as well, because you you did edit so many of my stories on this issue. And, um, you know, I mean, I I mean, I I give you a quite a long acknowledgement in the book, so I, I, I won't repeat that here. People can read it there. But, uh, you know, essentially, and the whole EI team, you know, because it, to do this story for so long, you can't do it without the backing of um, a proper editorial team who can fact check you, who can say, well, you know, is this really accurate? And, and you know, then I can show the evidence for it in the editorial process before we publish, you know, so that it can um, withstand those um, pressures. And so we know that it's going to stand up to scrutiny because there was no other story which was so scrutinized as this one, because you're going against the entire flow of the mainstream media. And as you said, not just the mainstream media, but even parts of the so-called left-wing media certainly in Britain. Um, and the second thing to say, um, yeah, so, you know, all credit to you, Ali, as well, and the rest of the EI team for really encouraging me in this story. Um, and, you know, and the book is the result of, of that reporting. Um, that, so, yeah, the second thing to say is that, yes, I mean, I've thought about this issue of the fact that EI is is based in, in the US. I mean, obviously, I live and report from the UK. Um, but, you know, feeling as part of a, a US-based team and coming from the outside perspective did give us a different perspective and that we weren't um, so much subjected to that kind of groupthink that was really going on in a really insidious way in Britain, um, which really contributed towards this media fabrication. And um, yeah, I mean, I I think uh, I mean, I, it tells you something as well that I wasn't able to find a British publisher for the book, you know, or or books is, um, I mean, it will they will be publishing it in the UK, but it's um, headquarters in New, in New York, um, and they you know they've they've done a brilliant job of um, standing behind the the book. I mean, I, and I know they will do so, but um, the fact that I couldn't find a British publisher, even in, among the left-wing publishers, tells you something about how successful, really, this story was in the sense uh, this media fabrication was in a similar way to how uh, weapons of mass destruction was successful in manufacturing consent for the war in Iraq. The, the, the left-wing anti-Semitism fabrication was successful in manufacturing a kind of consent for the overthrow of Jeremy Corbyn and his delegitimization on the left, which still continues to this day. And it's about more than Corbyn as an individual, because, you know, he's not by no means infallible. And I do get into some criticisms of him in the book. Um, but it's 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 about what it meant for the rest of us, because it it really the whole story really seeped into the rest of public life in Britain, you know, not just within activist circles or left-wing circles, um, 
but um, public life. You know, we 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 saw people like David Miller deposed from their jobs because of uh, because of questioning this kind of false narrative. So, you know, it's had this really poisonous effect on political life, especially in Britain, which continues until today. You know, and in the, one of the difficulties I faced in doing the book is that the story has not ended. So it's um it's not history it's not it's not fully history it's it's current it's some sort of hybrid between history and current affairs where i've had to keep updating the book every time um i do some you know copy edits on it or something um so it, that's been a real challenge but uh hopefully one i haven't met well i just say we're very proud of you asa and i oh, think yeah. we're all very proud to have played any part in this i mean this is your dogged reporting over eight years but we're all very proud to have played a part in it and um and hopefully this will open many more eyes and and i think give people the courage many people do i think you tell a lot of stories of courage of people standing up to these bullying and smear campaigns but i i hope it will give many more people courage to stand up to the kind of uh, bullying and slander and lies that uh, Israel and its lobby routinely tell about people yeah. and with such devastating effect in in the case of Jeremy Corbyn and the movement that he that brought him to the brink of power in the UK and I hope that the lessons can really be learned uh, because if so then um, you know then there's, there's there's some optimism to take from this yeah, and you know, I'm just struck by how parallel um things are between, you know, like the 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 you know, the the lobby and the push uh to smear Palestine rights activists as anti-Semites and how that's become this accepted, you know, non-interrogated narrative in the UK. The same thing obviously is also happening in the US. Um and we see you know, activists, students. Um, I'm working on a story right now. It should be out by the time um, this podcast is 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 published about UC Berkeley and the law students there who passed a you know a bylaw, um, you know, say pledging that they wouldn't invite uh, speakers who support Israeli apartheid um, or the the racist political ideology of Zionism and how. Um, there has just been a torrent, you know, this like um, consistent, incessant uh, barrage of attacks and smears and doxing campaigns. I mean, here around Berkeley, I, you know, I was driving to do errands the other day and I saw the truck that this Israel lobby group uh, masquerading as some like media watchdog organization called Accuracy in Media. They, they, um, bought or rented this truck with a huge screen on both sides and they were flashing the names of these Berkeley law students who had signed or supported this pledge. Um, you know, real just like absolute harassment. And and we yeah. see the capitulation by university administrators who say, you know, who kind of give credence to this uh this this uh, uh claim that you know there there is anti-semitism on the left that yes you know well we have to be careful about who we support and who we don't and and you know these law students 
obviously don't know what they're talking about. And, and um, it's, it's, it's dangerous and it is so calculated and it's meant to create a chilling effect, you know, on campuses, in political activism circles, in the labor party. Um, and, and so we see this, you know, we see this happening um, apace and, and, you know, part of what we have always done at EI is to um, spotlight uh, who these actors are that are making these claims and how the Israel lobby is behind it, um, how these Israel lawfare organizations based in Tel Aviv are trying to dictate the policies of um, political activity in, in the U.S. and the U.K. and the EU. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about that and about, you know, in 2022, how we see international civil society pushing against these kinds of smear campaigns and, um, and you know, pushing against uh, uh, you know regulations like the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of so-called anti-Semitism, uh, which is really a shield for Israel. Um, yeah, Asa and and Ali, like, how, how do we how do we talk about um, how people push back in that context? Well, one. A thing I want to give a shout out to Nora is the the brilliant video that you did. Was that this year or last year? Because like it was time, last year. It, I know. Was it really last year? <laughs> it last but year. it's 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 evergreen and it's so good. And <laughs> yeah. I can't recommend it enough. And it's just a great uh, video. This mini documentary that you uh, wrote and uh, presented that that's just fantastic. I hope we can. Uh, link it provide the link to it in uh, in this uh, we can, yeah great um so that's a, a great sort of primer on the issue for people but basically you know long story short israel and its lobby have been trying to push this uh so-called definition of anti-semitism it's called the I ihra definition it's not really a definition, and it was created by Israel lobbyists, and it's been adopted by the EU and by the State Department and by uh, various European governments, Canada, of course. And there's a big push to get it adopted at every level by universities, by city councils, by, you know, you name it, just to kind of make it the uncontroversial standard definition of anti-Semitism. Of course, the reason Israel and its lobby are pushing it so hard is because it defines many kinds of criticism, if not all criticism of Israel, as a form of anti-Jewish bigotry. So you can see it's obvious why that would be useful to Israel and its lobby, because that's a great way to shut down debate uh, so this IHRA definition has become sort of the real battleground now in universities, in city councils, uh, across North America and Europe, in the UK as well. And, of course, that's made life challenging for Palestine solidarity activists who have to fight smears and lies and slanders based on the application of this bogus definition of anti-Semitism. But from the perspective of Israel and its lobby, 
I think the IHRA definition has been a failure nonetheless, because for it to have succeeded, it needed to be uncontroversial. You know, it just needed to become sort of background noise. Yeah, everyone accepts this. And you said something that violates this this definition. So that makes you an anti-Semite. But the fact that there's been so much resistance to it, I think, is the failure of the Israel lobby. Because if it's controversial, you haven't succeeded in normalizing it. So you've done more reporting, I think, this year, Nora, on those kinds of battles. So I'm curious to hear what how you see that taking shape. <laughs> yeah, um, I I think I think you know, and we talked about this earlier. I think that um, students, especially, and and young people uh, generally, um, aren't buying the 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 lie about Israel anymore. Um, they they see it, uh, you know, as, uh, I mean, they see Israel as a settler colony, which it is. They see it as, a, as an arm of U.S. And, and European imperialism, which it is. Um, and, you know, and time and time again, you know, I think, I think students are um, fighting uh, as best they can to to stop these kinds of smear campaigns. Um, unfortunately, they don't have the resources that the Israel lobby groups do. They don't have the backings of their university administrations. Um, they do have legal support now. You know, we see Palestine Legal here in the States. We see the European Legal Support Center in, in the UK and, uh, and Europe. And, um, you know, there are burgeoning um, similar organizations in Canada. Um but nevertheless, they, you know, they are not, they're still not afraid to sign their names to these kinds of pledges, even though they they understand, you know, the threat of doxing by these well-funded uh, Israel lobby groups, um, even though they understand that, you know, it, it, it won't be an easy fight um, because, you know, they, they under, they do understand that this is a, a, a moral issue and, an ethical issue and um and you know an anti-racist issue um i mean palestine i think now more than ever has become just kind of this like normal normalized um you know human rights uh, issue um it's not as controversial as it was even 5 10 years ago um you know controversial in quotes but i i think that that the Israel lobby groups on campus are are, are shrinking, um, while groups like Students for Justice in Palestine or Jewish Voice for Peace, the chapters on campuses are are growing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the campus has always been a battleground, um, and I think the Israel lobby just continues to to wage a very well funded and 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 really you know debased war. Um, but they're losing. Their their overall narrative has failed. Uh, they can't, you know, as as we used to say, they can't debate the facts. Um, so they resort to these really insidious smear campaigns, which have a shelf life. Um, so, 
Yeah, I think in 2023, we're going to see more of these um, organized campaigns to fight against these kinds of smear tactics and these like doxing campaigns like we're seeing at, at UC Berkeley right now. Um, but it is a fight uh, that they have to keep waging, unfortunately. So <laughs> you know, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. Yeah, it's a really interesting point that the Israel lobbyists have failed in their sort of maximal ambition to have the IHRA definition accepted yeah. and controversially. Um, you, you do see this thing that they say, which is that, oh, it's the international standard definition of anti-Semitism, right. as if it's this <laughs> thing that's always been there, when actually it was invented in 2016, um, although it had been around for longer than that in a different form, but which was... Um, a form that was written by an Israel lobbyist. Right. I mean, right. It was essentially right. the same document, but it was, yeah. um, you know, it was discarded by the European Union's um, anti-racism body, which caused a problem for them. So they had to sort of resurrect it in 2016. Right. But really, it's part of like a much longer um, campaign, which comes from Israel itself, of the so-called new anti-Semitism, isn't it? Like it's it's part of this much longer-standing campaign. I mean, um, one of uh, the pieces uh, Joseph, our friend Joseph Massad, wrote this. I think it was this year where he wrote about, um, you know, the roots of the the new the idea of a new anti-Semitism, right. actually starting in the seventies with the Israeli. Um, the diplomat, um, I think his name was uh, Aubrey Solomon, right? Abba Iban. His, uh, who, yeah, who, Iban. Who, yeah. Um, who, um, yeah, he said that um, the new anti-Semitism now is, um, I forget his exact words, but um, essentially saying that, you know, being against Israel, criticizing Israel in some way is quote unquote the new anti-Semitism. Right. And when I was mentioning this in my book as part of the background for this issue, um, I googled like this. How many? There's been so many books since then, since since this was said by um, Aubrey Solomon, aka Abba Eban, um, titled "The New Anti-Semitism." Right. That the, the ADL and others wrote all these books about. Oh, the new anti-Semitism, the new anti-Semitism. Um, so it's it's always this idea that oh, it's a new it's a new thing that. Um, that okay oh it, i suppose their idea is that oh well it you know you may think it's a good idea to support palestinian or support palestinians or to support human rights but actually this is secretly an insidious form of anti-semitism and that's really i mean i guess that's really the idea that sort of is behind the ihra definition and and uh on this you know because we're seeing this now there's sort of a whole wave of uh claims again about a new anti-Semitism. Uh, in recent days, there was a summit at the White House about the new anti-Semitism, about the supposed upsurge in anti-Semitic expression online. These claims are always made and they're really impossible to, to verify. Of course, I should be clear that all of us have always been consistent that we oppose any form of bigotry, including uh, bigotry against Jewish people. So, but that's not the issue. The issue here is the claim that there is this upsurge in anti-Semitism and using that in order to, as a pretext to silence Palestinians and those who are in solidarity with them. That's the game that right. 
you know, the Anti-Defamation League and others play. And I think the even more insidious part of that, we've mentioned it before, but I think it bears repeating, the there is anti-Semitism, and we've seen that play out in the most utterly horrific ways in uh, the past couple of years with uh, anti-Semitic massacres in synagogues in the United States and attacks on Jewish people in the United States and other countries that have come from the far right and from neo-Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. And then the Israel lobby groups, well, yes, of course, they'll denounce that, but then they'll both sides it. They'll say, right. uh, oh, yes, of course, there's anti-Semitism on the right, but there's anti-Semitism on the left, like yeah. the BDS movement, right. which yeah. the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, which has nothing to do with anti-Semitism and nothing to do with the horrific neo-Nazi violence. So it's this really cynical uh, use of anti-Semitism yeah. by the Israel lobby groups that we see time and again. And that that I suppose you're right, Nora, it's a battle that we always have to keep, you know, it, it, we have to fight it again and again and again. But I suppose the good news in a way is that I think it's becoming less effective. More yeah. people are seeing through it. And it's like when you use something when everyone is an anti-Semite, according to Israel, just for you know the merest criticism, then the term loses all meaning. Yeah. And I think that's the point they've reached because there are no defenses for what Israel does. You know, I mean, if an EU official dares to utter, you know, the most meek and the most uh, sugar-coated criticism of Israel, Israel, oh, you're an anti-Semite. Yeah. So, I mean, if there's nothing you can say that isn't anti-Semitic in the eyes of Israel, the term becomes meaningless. Yeah. And that that's what they've done. But the real danger then, too, is that people dismiss real anti-Jewish bigotry when we need to always be standing up against that. But the fact is that most of the claims of anti-Semitism which are intended to silence support for Palestinians have actually nothing to do with bigotry against Jewish people. Yeah. 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 I mean, this is what you described there, Ali, is very similar to what's been happening in the UK. Like there were, I mean, and this was, the, this was the problem with Jeremy Corbyn's response as well to the whole issue was that he, I mean, you know, whether on advice from his his team or whatever it was that caused it, his response to this smear campaign was always to condemn anti-Semitism. You know, that was his reflective response time and time again was to say, we condemn anti-Semitism. I condemn anti-Semitism. I get I'm, I've always campaigned against anti-Semitism. OK, you know, that's great. And that is true. You know, he has always campaigned against anti-Semitism um, and, you know, as you said, like, of course, we all condemn anti-Semitism. But what he seemed to fail to understand was, as you said, this was never about real anti-Semitism. It was always about the fact that he supported Palestinian rights uh, and that the people I mean, behind it, him supported Palestinian yeah. rights. Imagine, Asa, if someone comes and falsely accuses me of some heinous thing. Someone comes and falsely accuses me of murder, right? They say, right. you committed this murder, and yeah. of course I'm completely innocent of this, all right? Yes. <laughs> a normal person would say, this is outrageous. 
This is absolutely false. I am completely innocent of this crime. Imagine instead if you come and falsely accuse me of murder, and my response is, well, I'm against murder. <laughs> I've always been against murder. <laughs> I, it's a bit you, like the sort of uh, when did you stop hitting your wife kind exa- of thing, isn't Exactly. It? You'd yeah. look at me and say, wait, that's is that what someone says when they're falsely accused of murder? Like, of course, I've always spoken out against murder. I mean, it, <laughs> it makes no sense. What yeah. Jeremy Corbyn and what everyone who's falsely accused should do is say, this is a lie. This is not about anti-Semitism. This is not a good faith attempt to to stand up to bigotry. This is a lie in the service of smearing and silencing Palestinian voices and people who stand up to Israel's crimes. That's what the response should always be to these false accusations. And the kind of both sidesing that you described there by uh, groups like the ADL, where they use it's a really sinister when you think about it you know it's really sinister what they do where you know you have these heinous uh acts of anti-jewish violence and bigotry that happen like as you described you know the the, mo- the mosque uh sorry the uh, the synagogue massacre in pittsburgh um you know where you you do see this kind of phenomenon by uh pro-israel groups and individuals where they say well, you know, that's that's bad. The right wing anti-Semitism is bad. But, you know, I feel more threatened on a daily basis by by left wing anti-Semitism. Left wing anti-Semitism was a threat. And again, we saw the same sort of thing in the UK where this uh, former Labour MP, Luciana Berger, she was attacked by um, she was she was threatened by um, two. There were two um, anti-Semites who were convicted of harassing her. Um, and and threatening her life who were neo-nazis you know it came out in court they were um they were you know these uh, sort of uh, far-right bigots and they were convicted in court of it of harassing her and, th- and um issuing death threats against her in her office in a sustained manner um and that's all been reported in the press but when luciana berger would talk about that in the press and her experience she would then um use those convictions as an opportunity to attack the left, to attack Jeremy Corbyn and to kind of imply that some of the um, abuse that she'd received online was from Jeremy Corbyn's supporters. You know, so it's a really kind of insidious thing that um, the the lengths that um, pro-Israel lobbyists will go to, you know, and this was another thing as well. Luciana Berger, she she was literally a pro-Israel lobbyist in the past. You know, she worked for... She worked. It was one of her jobs was to, before she was an MP, was to work for Labour Friends of Israel. Incredible. Um, we only have a few minutes left, and and maybe you know we can wrap up by talking about some of the, um, you know, most significant uh, direct actions that people in Palestine and around the world have taken in support of Palestinian liberation. I mean, we we discussed in part one. Um, the work of Palestine Action in the UK, uh, and how that's really shifted the terrain of direct activism um, against, uh, you know, Israeli colonial uh, and and military um, arming, uh, and and but we also saw here in the US um, the the consistent um, sustained you know standing up to to Israel by Ben and Jerry's. 
<laughs> for example. <laughs> like it's, you know, it's it's really this um really the ice interesting. Cream yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh Ali, you you covered a lot of the the ins and outs of the Ben and Jerry's campaign, which didn't begin this year, but began last year in 2021, but is still, you know, this really important uh campaign. Talk about that. Yeah, I, I want to say something about Ben and Jerry's. I also would love to hear Asa say more uh, about Palestine action. But I just want to say before we we get to that, that this year, really 2022, really feels like there was a sea change in terms of resistance on the ground in Palestine. Of course, everyone is familiar with the resistance in Gaza that has been there for many years. But we've seen in 2022 a resurgence of on-the-ground resistance, including armed resistance in the West Bank, and the sort of loss of control of Israel and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, that uh, and the emergence of armed resistance groups like the Lion's Den, in which is based in Nablus, which have really become popular heroes in Palestine, they're not affiliated with any particular political faction, which is certainly a sort of a unifying element to it. And they've been very uh, focus, focused on targeting the Israeli army in the West Bank. So that's given their actions uh, a much sort of clearer international legitimacy in a way that uh, other types of armed resistance haven't always had in the eyes of the so-called West. Not that that's the most important thing. I'm, I'm just sort of g giving an assessment of how this has played out. But so I think that's key. And that's something that is certainly not going to let up and is something to keep watching in 2023. In terms of Ben and Jerry's, this is a story I actually enjoy covering because who doesn't love ice cream? Every time I write one <laughs> of these stories, I just I'm thinking about eating ice cream, and it happens. So I've probably gained a few pounds covering <laughs> the Ben and Jerry story. But there we have a good line in headline puns as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's sort of an in-house rule: is we have to try and have an ice cream pun in every headline. I don't know if we've managed <laughs> in every one, but we, we've done most pretty of them good. for sure. Yeah. But the, the key thing about this story here is, you know, it, it, it's, it really shows a lot of, the, it sort of demonstrates a lot of the things we've been talking about. And I'll try and break it down as simply as I can. So Ben & Jerry's, well-known ice cream uh, brand, uh, known for its sort of quirky character. Its founders were kind of leftish, progressive guys in Vermont when they founded the company in 1975. It's always spoken out about various social and environmental causes, and that's part of its character. In 2000, uh, Ben & Jerry's was bought by Unilever, massive international conglomerate that, you know, you go to any supermarket anywhere in the world and probably half the products, whether it's shampoos or food products or whatever it is, has got the Unilever brand on the back of it. But... Ben & Jerry's negotiated this unique deal when Unilever purchased them that said, okay, you're going to buy us, but we're going to retain independence over our social mission, the right to continue to speak out without interference from the parent company. 
so in July 2021, uh, Ben and Jerry's announced finally, we're pulling out of Israel because we can no longer, uh, in good conscience, allow our ice cream to be sold in settlements in the West Bank because we're profiting from violations of international law and war crimes against the Palestinians. But the only way to pull out of the settlements in practice was to pull out of Israel. So Ben and Jerry's made the decision to end its long-standing license agreement with the Israeli ice cream manufacturer. When this was announced, Israel went, uh, had a meltdown. I think that was the term we used in our, <laughs> our headline. Uh, Israel had a meltdown. Naftali Bennett openly threatened Unilever, said, well, you know, we groups went uh, uh, nuts and bananas to use another ice cream uh, pun. Um, <laughs> and the pressure on Unilever began. And then in, I think it was June of this year, Unilever suddenly announced, oh, we've sold the rights to the Ben & Jerry's name in Israel to the Israeli licensee. So Ben & Jerry's has no more say over its own brand and own ice cream in Israel. We've sold that right to the Israeli company. It's done and dusted. It's over. Ben & Jerry's will continue to be sold in Israel and the settlements, and Ben & Jerry's can do nothing. Well, Ben & Jerry's sued. and. Uh, they have stuck to their guns. The case is ongoing. Ben and Jerry's filed the lawsuit in July of this year, and it's it's sort of grinding through federal court in New York. And um, efforts at mediation failed because Ben and Jerry said this is this is absolutely fundamental to us. If if Unilever can impose this on us, then they can do anything, and our entire social mission is. Uh, is over. Basically, Ben & Jerry's is sticking to its guns. It's going through with the lawsuit. It's suing Unilever because they're saying that this is bigger than just about Israel and the settlements. If we, if Unilever can impose this on us, then the entire agreement and our mission, our independence to pursue our social mission is gone. But the, the thing I wanted to just get to is that the whole Unilever deal where Israel where Unilever sold the Ben & Jerry's brand to the Israeli company was stitched up with an Israel lobby group called the Lewis Brandeis Center, which has been behind so many bogus lawsuits and lawfare against various Palestine solidarity groups. So the Israel lobby and even the Israeli government came out and celebrated when Unilever announced, yeah, we're, we're, Ben & Jerry's will continue to be sold because we've taken it away from Ben & Jerry's and given it to the Israeli company. And they all came out and said, victory, defeat for the Palestinians. What they didn't expect is that Ben & Jerry's would stick to its guns. And then this becomes a lawsuit, which is constantly in the news, which keeps the settlements in the news, which keeps the boycott movement in the news. And again, it totally backfired. And the most recent thing, just a couple of weeks ago, is that Ben & Jerry's came out and actually repudiated the Ben & Jerry's ice cream that's sold in Israel. They said, basically, it may have our label, but it has nothing to do with us. It's not our ice cream. We don't support this.
as with the IHRA definition of trying to ram it down everyone's throats and say to Ben and Jerry's, you will sell your ice cream in the settlements whether you like it or not, has just completely backfired in this case. And I think Ben and Jerry's is only going to gain in popularity. It's like this is not costing Ben and Jerry's sales. On the contrary, uh, I think their most recent announcement was that they, they've had record sales around the world. So again, I think it's showing the sea change that if you want to stand up to Israel, you can. But it's getting that message to out to more people, I think, that's that's the key. And yeah. yeah, and and if you stick to your guns and you don't capitulate to the lobby, you will still be supported by, you know, consumers or, uh, you know, constituents. I mean, it it, it can by go normal people exactly. <laughs> I, I found it really interesting when that story came out that um, uh, the story broke of you know Unilever pulling out and. Um, I've capitulated to the Israel lobby essentially and selling the Ben and Jerry's brand to um, the uh, Israeli licensee, the Israeli um, factory, which sold the ice cream and put the Ben and Jerry's label on it. Essentially. Um, I find it interesting because even uh, there was even some usually pro Palestinian media out there, which got the story wrong. And they sort of said that, you know, this, it had failed and that Ben and Jerry's had backed down and they hadn't really understood the ins and outs that you've just described there of the, the a Unilever deal and Ben and Jerry's social mission and all that. And I, I found that really interesting because, you know, what it, I mean, it, it showed, I mean, at a minimum now, I mean, I think it, it's going to, as you've described, it's going to be not a victory in the medium to long term for Israel, but at the very least it was a Fyrick victory for them because you know they they've had well they're still selling ice cream that calls itself ben and jerry's in inside israel and inside the settlements and they're they're all sort of gloating about this but as you've said you know the actual fact just shows that their behavior is just has led to ben and jerry's doubling down on its social mission and saying well no we don't want this to be sold in these settlements that are dis displacing palestinian people every day and as you said the the issue of settlements the issue of dispossession of the palestinians the the campaign to boycott israel it just is in the stories in the international press you know it's not just ei i mean i think we've covered it in the best way really but this is getting a kind of mainstream traction this story and it it's the kind of case that um you know all israel's claimed victories turn to dust really yeah, absolutely. And and some really just I'll just say also some really interesting things have come out in the court documents because, um, yeah, you're right. This has gotten widespread coverage. But I think EI, we're the only ones who are sort of reading every court paper that comes out and every motion that we can get our hands on. Yeah. Um, and some really interesting things have come out in some of the recent filings that I reported on, which is that uh, the the company itself you have the in in ben and jerry's own filings in court they talk about how much pressure the company felt from activists over the last few years saying we just risk losing all credibility in terms of our social mission and our ability to 
even partner with various uh, social organizations and civil society organizations because we are not addressing this issue of the settlements. And so we have to works. Yes. So that was the, the, the lesson is that they were feeling the pressure. They talk about how many people, you know, hundreds of people and shout out to Vermonters for a just peace because that group um, was really in the forefront because Ben and Jerry's is based in Vermont, was really in the forefront of keeping the pressure on the company locally and making it a local issue in Vermont. For so more than a decade, that, too. Like it for was more than a decade. Yeah, for more than a decade. And and in the court papers, you have these quotes from various uh, uh, Ben & Jerry's officers saying, look, we've tried everything to kind of sidestep this. I mean, you know, sort of... I'm paraphrasing, but you know we've we've we formed a committee and we sent fact finding missions and we you know we did everything we could to kind of just kick the can down the road, <laughs> but now we have to act. And and they were talking about how we tried to get Unilever to address it and they wouldn't. So finally, Ben and Jerry's took the decision itself to end sales in Israel. So it's again a lesson, no matter what happens with the lawsuit, and that's a story we will keep following in 2023 because it's still in the courts. It hasn't been resolved yet. But at least we can say that what we already learned from the Ben and Jerry situation is that activism works. Making your voice heard matters. That's what the top executives of that company are revealing in the context of this case. So I, I just wanted to emphasize yeah. that as as a bit yeah. of good news and encouragement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of activism, works. I mean, we should talk about Palestine action. Yeah, I um, think that's a I, good note to end on for sure. Yeah, I think that um, what's really interesting about Palestine action, I think the significance of what they've done, which is different, is the sustained nature of the campaign. Like, but their. Um, their strategy of direct action is not new. Like so, uh, in terms of direct direct action against Israeli um, arms companies or Israeli importers, it's happened before in Britain. Like there was um, <clears throat> a decade or more ago, there was um, an Israeli food fruit and uh, produce importer, um, Carmel Agrexco, uh, which was successfully shut down by a fairly sustained um, campaign of of direct action just activists going to them um they they were based their factory was based in the north london suburb and they would just go along and they would just um basically chain themselves to uh concrete barrels and things like that and they would um just cause problems for the factory and eventually it left um and so you know and there, and there have been direct action campaigns against um Elbit specifically as well in the past too, but I think what's new about Palestine Action is really the sustained nature of it, that it's been, so what they smartly noticed and took note of was the fact that Elbit has, Elbit, the uh, Israeli, Israel's uh, largest um, arms exporter, one of Israel's largest arms firms, um, which, you know, notoriously makes drones which are they advertise as battle tested in other words battle tested on palestinians uh, on palestinian civilians and they you know they export these drones all over the world and they use them in 
um, operations against Palestinian civilians in in Gaza, especially. Um, and so Elbit has ten, nine or ten, or it had ten uh, premises in the UK, uh, uh, often owned by subsidiary companies. Um, and so they were factories. There was a there was an office in London. Um, uh, there's a headquarters in Bristol, and there's the, they have these different premises. And so what they notice is they notice an opportunity to to carry out a sustained campaign against them, against these premises, and to you know to, to once they do it, not not just do it as a one off, but to keep on returning time and time again. Um, and the strategy has been successful because. It's seeing, it's really seeing results now, and it's really encouraging to see. So you know, it and uh, the story that I reported on earlier this year, where I think my headline or our headline was something along the lines of "Palestine Action is legalizing direct action against Elbit," because that is seems to be effectively what's happening. Um, because as you mentioned in the first part, Ali, the um, juries and even judges and magistrates are understanding that um, this kind of direct action is allowed because, you know, you're allowed to, you know, if there's a, if there's a fire in a building, you know, it's, there's a long established principle in law that, you know, if there's a fire in a building, you're allowed to break down a door. So, you know, what would normally be a crime breaking and entering or destroying somebody else's property is allowed in the circumstances where there's not to do nothing would be a greater crime. So, and so Palestine Action's lawyers have been explicitly arguing, yes, they caused damage to this factory. Yes, they smashed a few windows. You know, they they spread paint on it um, and they smashed up premises inside, things like that. But this is not wanton destruction. It's not vandalism. It's not any kind of violence. But they're carrying out these actions to prevent a greater crime, which is Israeli war crimes, in Gaza um, and in all of historic Palestine, really. So um, it's been really encouraging to see that that has been successful time and time again. You know, it, it, one of the happy difficulties of reporting the story of Palestine action is um, it's it's hard to keep up <laughs> with with uh, all of their. Uh, court cases that have been dropped against them or that they've won and all the many different, you know, they're constantly sending us press releases of the different actions that they've done. And um, we can't report them all <laughs> as much as we try, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a really encouraging sign, I think. Yeah. 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 And, and it, it seems as though, you know, the activists themselves are uh, just getting stronger and more organized and and more defiant and um you know it's it i mean yeah it, it's kind of incredible to see um how unafraid they are to take on um this major arms dealer and and the you know the british government itself and and the cops and you know i mean they get arrested and and there's a campaign and then they get released and they just scale another building it's 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 pretty impressive um yeah finally Ali how how are you looking forward to to 2023 um you know with direct actions like Palestine action um with uh students on campus with um Palestinians inside Palestine and 
in the diaspora uh, resisting by by all means necessary. Um, what do you think 2023 has in store? Uh, I, we sent a letter to supporters to, to the many hundreds, thousands of people whose donations make our work possible recently. And in it, uh, we said that it feels like the struggle in Palestine is really on the cusp of a, a new era, particularly because of the resistance on the ground. It's it's unrelenting nature, the fact that Israel just isn't able to quell it, that every time the Israelis and their uh, accomplices around the world think the Palestinian cause is dead and buried and they can just celebrate the Abraham Accords or some other agreement with the EU or whatever it is, um, Palestinians are there and they're, they're steadfast and they're refusing to submit. And that is having an impact internationally in terms of rallying solidarity and support. Another thing I said is that um, the just the sheer hypocrisy of the Western response to Ukraine, I think, has really opened many people's eyes uh, in the sense that, you know, uh, Palestinians are under occupation. They've been invaded. Their homes are being colonized and they're told you can't resist. Exist. Anything you do is terrorism. You pick up a stone is terrorism. Meanwhile, every weapon, you know, the arsenals of NATO countries are being emptied to send to uh, to Ukraine. Uh, Palestinians are being told, don't go to the International Criminal Court because that's a unilateral action and it's upsetting the Israelis. While the US and Canada and the EU are pouring huge amounts of money into war crimes investigations in Ukraine and so on. Uh, so that's opening people's eyes. And, and I think demonstrating that all these uh, principles that we're told apply are really just uh, just a matter of convenience for the so-called West. So I think that's also changing the situation. I think 2023 is going to be very tough with this Again, I'm not. I don't want to fall into the trap of saying, "Oh, this government is going to be worse." The violence against Palestinians doesn't stop uh, or doesn't lessen because you have so-called centrists like Yair Lapid. But I think we're going to be. We're just going to have to be ready for everything and anything. And uh, but at the same time, I feel like things are on the edge where we could really see rapid transformation in a positive direction if we just keep uh, keep standing up for what we believe. And that's that's the thing that, uh, you know, gives me hope as we go forward after another very tough year in Palestine. Ali Abunima, our executive director, uh, thank you so much for keeping us afloat and vital as we head into 2023. Um, thank you, Asa. And of course, we will be um, doing a, a separate show uh, around the publication date of Asa's book. Um, and for all of the links that we've been talking about, all the stories that um, we uh, have been discussing today, you can find them on the Electronic Intifada uh, podcast blog post that accompanies this episode at electronicintifada.net. Uh, Asa and Ali, thank you so much. Have a great holiday.
You too. Thank you too. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.